Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. Parenting is one of the most rewarding, but also hardest jobs in life. All parents want to raise happy and healthy children. But modern society, social pressure, and recent challenges, like the global pandemic, can make it incredibly difficult. How can we shake off the ideal image of the perfect parent so that we can focus on nurturing and connecting with our kids in more meaningful ways? This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Dr. Becky Kennedy. She's a clinical psychologist, mom of three, and was named the Millennial Parenting Whisperer by Time Magazine. She's also the founder of Good Inside, an expert-guided, community-powered platform equipping parents with a new way of seeing and solving challenges at home. Dr. Becky, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here. I'm so excited for this conversation. It is a new topic for the WorkWell podcast. So tell us who you are, tell us about yourself, and then how you became passionate about parenting and helping parents. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Dr. Becky Kennedy. I am a clinical psychologist, and I specialize in relationships, um, child development, parenting, resilience. And I know I'm here kind of along the lines of the topics of parenting. I think that what I always kind of like to share around that is I look at parenting in really the same way I look at adults relating to other adults Mm. or even the way I look at adults in psychotherapy in terms of the relationship they have with themselves. Really helping in some ways many adults see that the principles that really will help me interact with my kid and help my kid develop into the adult I would, you know, want them to be feeling competent and confident and all those things. Wow, those are actually really the same principles as I relate to myself or I relate to other people at work or I relate to my partner. And so there really is a universality to these things. And then the tweaks are a little bit different for a two-year-old versus a teenager versus a colleague. But there's actually something really powerful to seeing those network effects because then you realize, wow, working on one thing can actually help me in all of those relationships. And that's, in my mind, just really efficient. So I love helping adults kind of see those efficiencies. And I also am a mom to three kids, a 10-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a five-year-old. So so you have lots of opportunities to practice what you preach. <laughs> I have lots of, I love that way of putting it. I have lots of opportunity. And just for everyone right from the start, whatever I say here, like, especially the things that seem like really helpful. Please don't think I do those things with my own kids all the time. I definitely do not. Um, So I will listen to this podcast at some point and hear something and it'll make me think, wow, I really need to do that with my own kid because I've been doing totally the opposite. So we are all in this together. We are. And one of the things that I love about you, for those of you that do not follow Dr. Becky on social media, you should because she is very real and um, kind of talks about her 
parenting missteps quite quite a bit, um, <laughs> which you know makes us all feel just a little bit better about ourselves. So thank you for that. <laughs> it, uh, no problem. It's always funny to me when people say like, "Oh, do you have a camera inside my home? Like, how did you know that something like that would happen?" And I was like, "Well, no. Isn't the easier interpretation like, wow." that must have just happened in Becky's home. Like that's probably why she's speaking about it. So for sure, I have three real kids and it's just hard to be a parent for sure yeah. for everyone. And and I love that you talk about, you know, our relationship with ourselves um, and, you know, how that is in many ways kind of the same approach that you take to parenting. So can you kind of dive more deeply into that, just because I personally also have found that like as an adult, um, which I think I am most days, I, relationships are just like hard. I felt like they were so much easier when <laughs> when I was younger. So um, can you kind of unpack that for us? Yeah. You know, I think one of the ways to jump in there is if we all think about, let's say something with our kid that we find really hard right? Or we might even say, yeah, that's triggering to me, or it's just hard for me to show up even the way I'd want to show up, or it gets under my skin. So maybe it's your kid having a tantrum when you say no more screen time, or maybe it's your kid arguing, or maybe it's your kid um, clinging to you and you feel like, oh, they're the only kid not joining the birthday party, whatever it is that you're like, oh, it gives me the heebie-jeebies just to think about that situation, right? What I think is just such an empowering shift is to move from some version of like, what's wrong with my kid and how can I fix them? right? Mm -hmm. Which we all have those thoughts. So we're all still good parents. Don't worry. Two, huh? At the end of the day, whatever I respond to in someone else is really based on the circuit in my own body. Like mm -hmm. if it's hard for me to tolerate my kids' tantrums, sure, tantrums are hard for everyone. But also, however I learned to respond to big displays of emotion, that predated my kid's existence. Mm -hmm. Or however I respond to my kid clinging to me and seemingly presenting as shy and not ready to join the group, my reaction to that trait in someone pre-existed my child's existence. So they're triggering something in me. But when we learn to look in and ask questions like, what does it bring up for me when my kid's the only one who doesn't join? What beliefs mm. do I have? What fears get evoked? Do I even see my kid as a four-year-old or do I see them as a 40-year-old never able to join a dinner party? Or when my kid's having a meltdown, do I really see them <laughs> as a seven-year-old having a meltdown? Or again, do I have ideas like, oh, they're so selfish or they aren't going to be able to cope with life? And the more we're able to notice what comes up in us, I just think it's like the most empowering opportunity because I think some parents will say, oh, so it's my fault. And I'm like, no, it's like the opposite. Of course, it's not your fault. It's just really empowering as a parent to go mm -hmm. from, oh, I need my kid to change to feel sturdier and better to something else, which is, whoa, if I get a better sense of what's coming up for me and I learn to rework some of that, it's not only going to help me show up in the way I want, which also is going to be the thing that helps my kid. It's actually going to help me in so many other areas of my life. And so like how empowering and amazing is that? And I love that lens on it because you're right. We kind of tend to go to, well, it's my fault or I did something wrong or instead of looking at it as, okay, if I dig in and try to understand this a little bit better, it's empowering and I can actually do something about it as opposed to kind of feeling helpless. <laughs> exactly. And I think, again, this is true in parenting and partnership and at work. Every, like yeah. anybody who is thinking like I'm a senior manager and I have a really junior employee. Like let's say I have a first year person coming to work for me. Like no good manager I know would be like, I need 
my analyst to do these five things for me to feel good at my work. I feel like if we heard that, we'd be like, what? Like you're relying on a 22 year old to feel like, okay. Like that seems just really vulnerable to leave your own productivity. But if you're saying, here's the things I know I can do to be the best manager and get the most out of this person. And here's what I'm in control of. Well, now I have a way to leave work where I could feel good about myself based on my lane. Mm. And that separation is really important for a junior employee, right? And it's the same thing with our kids. And I find over and over, and I, I hear stories about this in our membership over and over, which to me is like such a cause for celebration where someone says, wow, this might seem crazy, but we have a place where people report like wins, parenting wins. And they say, my win actually came in a moment where I was in a grocery store and my kid had a meltdown and I knew what to do. Like I knew I had to leave the store. I knew how to carry them to the car. I knew what to say. And it's so odd that a situation that would have spiraled me now is actually the situation where I feel like I have a win But I always think that's the best win there is. When you can show up as a sturdy leader in a storm, you know you're doing an awesome job. That is true. (laughs) Very true words there. So when it comes to parenting, but I guess this is true in any relationship, but you have said before that the goal of parenting shouldn't be to make your kid happy. I Mm. guess we can't really make anybody happy, but (laughs) can can you talk more about that? Yeah. Thanks for asking that question. I like love this topic. It could be its own podcast. And <laughs> and I think we can all go from one extreme to another. Cause when I've said that to someone about my own kids, like my goal isn't for them to be happy. They'll like, oh, so you want your kids to be unhappy? Like, no, <laughs> you know, like those are not the only two buckets I promise that we have to choose from. So what I noticed during my years of working with so many adults in psychotherapy is there were like adults after adult after adult coming to my office essentially saying, like, I kind of know therapy is a place you're supposed to talk about your parents and all the bad things that happen, you know? They're like, honestly, my parents were like supportive and great. And like, I feel like actually they spent like a lot of my early childhood, like doing so much for me. And so like really, Dr. Becky, like what's wrong with me? Because as an adult, I feel handicapped by my own anxiety. I feel empty inside. I feel like something small goes wrong in a relationship or at work and I like have a really hard time recovering. And so it just started to make me think even before I had kids, like, what is this? Like, what is this where an emphasis on happiness early on seems to not lead to a finding of happiness later on? And when I got to think about it and then of course had my own kids and kind of lived through it, you know, our kids' early years are really all about learning to develop skills to manage emotions in life, period. It's like years to practice emotion regulation skills because we all know as adults, when you get to adulthood, no adult ever says like, I had the best parents ever. They got rid of all the frustration and jealousy and anger in me and I've never felt it after the age of 18. Like that's never happened, right? So either by the time you're an adult, when you still have all the feelings in the world as you did when you were a kid, you either have coping skills for those feelings or like you're kind of developmentally at a very similar place to a one and two-year-old where you have all the feelings, but you don't have any of the skills. Mm -hmm. And learning to respond to your frustration or your jealousy with a leap into happiness with kind of an immediate fix is something that is relatively achievable in your early years. Because a parent could say, oh, you weren't invited to that birthday party. I'm throwing you a different party that same date and we're going to invite 
the other kids or, right, they can do this for you. But then what your body actually learns is when I have even the little bit of frustration turned on, my body starts looking for the happy. Where's the happy? How do I get happy? And we know in adulthood, finding the happy is just not an option. Sometimes our only option is tolerating the distress. And so there's this kind of paradox that I really believe a childhood that's focused on kind of being happy actually leads to an adulthood of a ton of anxiety because you don't have any of the coping skills. You've kind of missed out on 18 years of learning how to cope with all the hard parts of life. Yeah, I that makes a ton of sense. And I'm I think reflecting on my in my own childhood and in in your words and going, oh, okay, now that makes sense. I know why I behave that way. <laughs> so what is it that parents get wrong about parenting? Like, you know, what are the mistakes that that we're making that mm. we may not even know about, right? And again, this is not to shame anybody, but to kind of raise our awareness around what we can do differently. Yeah. Um, it's a good question. If it's okay, I'll probably shift it to a question I feel like I can answer. You know, okay, the word mistakes, absolutely. I always – it's just interesting, like – I'm always like, I really do believe, and it's the essence of good inside, that we're all doing the best we can with the information and the resources we have available in that moment. And so I've actually challenged myself. I'm like, Becky, if I really believe that's true, do I even believe in the word mistake? Because Mm. mistake kind of assumes I could have done something else. And so just, you know, it's more than semantics. That doesn't mean I think that every behavior is okay. Obviously, like not. But I I think another version of that question is like, what are a lot of our blind spots? Me too. Like, what are our blind spots in parenting? And you know, I think it's like a really big, you know, question and it has to do with something much larger than our individual family system. It has to do with the way like the media and society even looks at parenting. Like I truly believe parenting is the hardest and most important job in the world, right? Like hardest and most important. And when I think about other jobs that would be classified as hard and important in in the world, I don't know, doctors, you know, like, I mean, a lot of jobs, they're hard and important, right? Like being a brain surgeon is a very important job and it's very hard. Like think about the education and the training and the ongoing support that people in that job have. And anybody who gets that training and ongoing support, they're looked at as they should be, like with with admiration, like good for you. And you're, oh, wow, you're taking additional training and you're getting additional mentorship. Like that's amazing. Like you must be the most amazing doctor in the world to be investing so much. And with parenting, it's like you have a child and everyone's like, go do that parenting thing. It's like you're assumed to just know what to do and you're given no resources, no support. And so what do you do? Well, without intervention, we parent the way we were parented. Hmm. And it's like, without intervention, we parent the way we're parented, not because we want to. Most adults I know are like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to parent the exact same way I was parented. But it lives in our body. It lives in our body as a set of patterns and knowledge and expectation. And so the biggest thing I would say to parents, it's not about a mistake, Mm -hmm. is it's almost just a biological truth. Like, I will end up interacting with my kids the way you know, the patterns of how I was interacted with live in my body. Like that is my blueprint. And if I don't get some training and education and knowledge and support, the type that actually would feel right to me and is in line with my values, right? So everyone has to find something in line with their values. But if I don't do that, I'm not a bad parent, right? It's just like I'm going to repeat patterns. Like it's the only thing I have to rely on. And I just think it's a really empowering thing for parents to think of their job in the same way as a brain surgeon would. Like, I deserve, 
not like what's wrong with me. Like a surgeon, I can't imagine being like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I need to go do a postdoc. Like, like would, I can't you imagine. You would want them to be your surgeon. <laughs> exactly. You'd be like, yeah, no way. I don't want you to just like do what you think could be right. Like the person with the most training, you'd feel the most comfortable with, especially if like, and so for parents saying like, this is an important and a really hard job, the most important, the hardest. Like I deserve resources and mm. support. I deserve both of those so I can show up in a way that actually feels right to me. During the pandemic or when the pandemic hit, your following um, skyrocketed. (laughs) And so why do you think it took a pandemic to get parents to kind of seek out that help and those resources and that training as to kind of you know, why they didn't do it before the pandemic, I guess, because we just felt like we needed to know everything as a parent? Well, it's a really thoughtful question. So for me personally, I can say, and this was just like odd, I guess, you know, timing is that I, I posted my very first, uh, I posted my very first social media post on February 28th, 2020. So it was two weeks before, and I live in New York City, it was two weeks before New York City shut down. So it wasn't very long, you know, so I wasn't doing much before that. Okay. I think there was something about the pandemic, right? I don't think this is my novel thought where like the idea of parenting is hard and important and actually more than that, like the idea that parenting is an essential service. People who care for kids are essential workers. Like it just became so obvious. It just slapped us in the face. We're like, wow, I literally nothing in my life functions the way I'd want it to if my kids don't have care. They don't. And so the idea of, you know, educators and babysitters and daycare centers and stay up in, you know, and work inside the home parents, like I think during the pandemic, everyone realized like, wow, these people make the world go round. And we also realized being with kids full time is really hard. So again, importance and difficulty was just, you know, right in our faces, right inside the walls of our home 24-7. And do you think that you know, obviously we're still in a pandemic, but you know, life is, I guess quote unquote, normalizing (laughs) somewhat. And we're going back to schools and daycares and things like that. Do you think that it's created like an increased appreciation for parenting? Or do you think we're going to kind of fall back into our old ways? I'm a hopeful I'm a hopeful person too. I wear it on my wrist. (laughs) I have a hope bracelet. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I would say I I work to be an optimistic person, you know? Um, And at the same time, there's nothing that's brought me as much hope for the world as watching the Good Inside community. I'm Mm. like, wow, there are millions of people out there who want to lean in and work on themselves and their parenting and their kids at the same time. So I do think we're in this moment. And what I'd say is I think think we have to keep carrying it forward. I think the idea that parenting is the hardest and most important job in the world. Like people have to share that more. People have to talk about that with their friends. You know, when someone says, oh, I couldn't even fold the laundry today. Like that person needs someone to say to them or text them or say in a forum, like, hey, let's actually think about all the things you did today. 
Mm. Like, you know, let's actually think about what you did, what you carried in your mind, in, in your body, what you took care of to take care of children and probably also to make your whole family system operate. And if you do have a parent who works outside the home and you're inside the home, like, you know what? You are responsible for making that all go round. So let's put the laundry to the side for a second and check in with all the things you've done and check in about everything you need. Because I think parents who work solely inside the home, historically, right, those have been women. Women historically also have a tendency to take a struggle and internalize it as their fault instead of turn it into anger at what they need, right? And so I really think the bigger mission of Good Inside is helping overwhelmed parents go from what is wrong with me to what resources and support do I deserve in this role? And if there's like a legacy we leave, and if there's, you know, that question of like, is this going to continue? And if we're at the precipice, I hope everyone listening to this takes that in mind. Like we need to help parents Mm -hmm. see their role as essential and think not in terms of all the things they're not doing or can't do, but all the resources and support they deserve. I love that. That's a great mission and one I'm certainly behind. So you can you can count on me to carry it forward. <laughs> so let's kind of dig into the workplace a little bit and kind right. of parenting in the workplace. Um, but what more can can you know companies do? Can good managers do? Good leaders do? Yeah. What I'm hopeful about, and again, what I hope really continues, and we need a you know a wave of people to keep speaking to the importance of this so it can continue, is an understanding that like people in the workplace come as whole people. Like let's take a parent with a toddler. If your toddler hasn't been sleeping for three weeks for whatever reason, the idea that that's not going to impact their work in their workplace, whether they're working at home and remote or in the office, like they carried that sleep problem to work. If you have a parent whose kid hysterically cries in protest at school drop-off before that parent comes to work, like the first many hours of work are probably carried with guilt, with wonder, with worry, with, uh, uh, my kid is reacting that way because I work and I am not able to pick them up. And if I only pick them up instead of my babysitter, whatever the story is, right? Like, I I think it's just really important to see employees as whole people that you can't isolate how someone operates in their home as a parent from how someone operates in the workplace as a worker. And I think the opposite is true as well. Like when I've, you know, now with everything at Good Inside and, you know, we do a lot of, I do a lot of talks at companies who are looking to support, you know, their parents are honestly now one of the amazing things that's happened is we have this really comprehensive membership that I couldn't be prouder of. And it's really the result of hearing from tens of thousands of parents over and over that they need the same things. They need trusted resources, like a library of resources. They need a community of parents to talk to, and they need access to experts they trust all in one place. So we created that. Truly, like the amount of inbound we've had from companies asking us Mm. if we offer enterprise accounts, it's been like the most heartening thing because I think people realize like, oh, people actually need a place to go to get that parenting help to help their kids sleep through the night in a way that feels good to them, not locking them behind a door. People need, I need to help my employee feel good about drop-off. Like as a human, I need to help them. And if I look at them as a whole person, everything that happens in their day interrelates. And so we need to offer people the type of support 
that helps him just be sturdier and more mm. confident and competent across the board. And given parenting is a huge percentage of a parent's life, that has to be an area that we invest in our employees. Like, I just think that that's that simple. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> From a, in a micro level, you know, I think even just like checking in with someone you manage, mm-hmm. like, hey, you know what I'm thinking about? Let's even say they're working remote. Like you're on this Zoom. Like my guess is a minute before this, you probably had to give your two-year-old a hug goodbye so you could come to your office for this meeting with me. Like how did that go? Like how's that going? I'm sure that feels hard. Or mm-hmm. even if you don't want to quote get that deep, just, hey, just want to let you know I know that. Like I know you showing up to this meeting on time involved some type of separation or hard moment with your kids and just want to let you know I like I see that – invisible moment. And I know that's hard and I appreciate you showing up, right? I I, I just think those those little things, like people, I really believe our, our greatest need, right? Of course, there's food, shelter, and water. I don't want to put right. that aside. But our greatest psychological need is, is to feel seen. Feeling seen is what helps us feel safe. And we want to feel seen in all of our parts. And the more parts of us we feel seen in, the more devoted we are and the more we're able to kind of work efficiently, right? So I'm in my work part, but actually the more I feel at work that someone understands my parent part, I'm going to be able to work better because that part actually doesn't feel alone. So I can focus more on work, right? So I always think these things are aligned, like just helping people from a humanistic, like it's just nice to help people feel supported, but also the idea of like, oh, I can actually help my employee feel better at work and be the most productive. Like you don't have to pick and choose. Like they're, they're generally very aligned in how you can do all of them at once. Yeah, we we talk about uh, high performance and well being aren't mutually exclusive. Actually, they they fuel one another. So exactly, this, this kind of fits in that. So you you've you've touched on this a couple times, and I I hear it so much. But you know, parents that have so many feelings of guilt, especially in the workplace, because they couldn't show up for this or they couldn't do that or they couldn't you know just you know general kind of feelings of guilt. So what? advice do you have for parents that are, you know, trying to manage their guilt in particular when it comes to managing their own careers as well as their family? Amazing question. (laughs) So the first thing I'll say about guilt is I think we spend way too much time thinking about how to get rid of guilt or minimize Mm -hmm. guilt or not feel guilt. And it's just, it's so counterproductive versus the goal of how do I tolerate guilt while doing something that's aligned with my values. So I'll give an example, right? Like, Often people say this to me, like especially working parents, like, okay, I'm working, I'm with my kids. Like I know I need, let's say it's like a night with girlfriends, right? But I'm a work outside the home parent. So I already spend less time with my kids. Mm. And how do I go out with my girlfriends and not feel guilty? And I always say like, great question. And I'm going to change that for you. How do you go out with your girlfriends and tolerate the guilt that goes along with that night? Okay, now now we're now we got something going. Let's go. How do you not feel a feeling that's coming up in your body? Like if anyone has the answer for that, let me know. I would find it disturbing <laughs> to understand how we could unfeel feelings. Like we feel before we think. Our feelings are the essence of like what happens first in our body. We just can't beat them. Like so if you can't beat them, join them, right? That's what you're supposed to do. So learning that you can do things that matter to you while tolerating guilt or while even being curious about what guilt is trying to tell you. 
Mm. Now, first of all, we have so many more options. It's like, oh, I guess I can go to dinner with my friend. Like, cool. I don't have to wait for the night that I don't feel guilty, right? Or I guess I can go on this business trip because I think it's going to be really exciting and really good for me. And I do feel guilty that I'm not dropping off my kids, but it's not like I have to choose Mm. between waiting till I don't feel guilty and going on the business trip or feeling guilty means I can't go on the business trip. Like it's just so limiting to be in that, what I call one thing is true mentality, right? So a couple more ideas then about guilt once we move from getting rid to tolerating. Guilt can mean many things. And I think one is guilt. And I think another one is the type of guilt that I call not guilt, just because I don't have anything else sophisticated (laughs) to call it. Um, And I think a lot of us feel something as guilt that's really not guilt. And so I'll explain what I mean. Guilt, I believe, it's not an official definition, it's mine, um, is watching ourselves act in a way that was not in accordance with our values, Mm. right? So like, I'm really stressed out. I come home. My husband asked me an innocuous question. I snap at him and I yell at him. Later, like, I feel guilty. Like, what is that trying to teach me? It's like, Becky, it's not in line with your values to yell at your husband about an innocuous question. Maybe I'll say, oh, what is that trying to tell me? If the pathway ended with yelling, where did it start? Oh, like I feel really overwhelmed. I feel really stressed. I usually take a minute to wait in my lobby before coming up to my kids and husband to take some deep breaths. I didn't do that. I, I can like I can learn from it. That's guilt. That's actually a really useful emotion. If we don't feel guilt, we aren't able to stay in check with the things we value, the things that we mad that matter to us. Then we can't change accordingly. Like I wouldn't wish the absence of guilt on anyone. Now, what's what I call not guilt is when we have a tendency of taking in other people's distress and disappointment as our own. Mm. And instead of seeing it as their disappointment, we like magically turn it into guilt in the air between us and someone else and take it in as our guilt. That is not guilt. It's not even your feeling. It doesn't even like, you're not even the owner. And especially women or anyone who really thinks about themselves as like an empath, kind of really attuned to other people's feelings. For a lot of us, it was actually really adaptive to do that early on. So we maybe had a parent who was like, oh, you're going to sleepover with your friend. Like you told me you would stay in with me tonight. You know, I'm all alone or something. It's like, oh, I'm such a bad daughter. Oh, what's wrong with me? I feel so guilty. That's not your guilt. That wasn't your feeling. Going out with your friends actually seems to be in line with your values. That's your, let's say, mom's disappointment. And instead of your mom saying, sure, you could go out with your friends. I'm, I'm a little disappointed and I'll learn to cope with that. You do your thing. I'll see you in the morning. No, she turned her disappointment into something in the air and you took it in. And so that's something I think I still think we do a lot. And I actually think ironically, it doesn't help anybody when we do that. And it definitely doesn't help a kid because when a kid then says to us, oh, you, you miss my, my drop off. It was spirit day and you didn't see it because you were on this business trip. And I'm like, oh, right. When we turn someone else's disappointment into our guilt, literally they become a pawn in our game. We don't even respond to their feeling. We are like, oh, but I had to go. Or, oh, you're making me feel bad. We're just looking to manage our feeling. Mm. It's like our kid doesn't even exist in their own right. When we're able to say, whoa, 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 this is my child's disappointment, not my feeling. I might have feelings coming up. Let me, Becky, let me save it for later. I can actually see my child and then respond by saying something like, you really wish I was at drop off. That felt really bad. You looked around, you saw all the other moms making this up, right? But like, and you didn't see me and that felt really bad to you. I believe you. I'm really glad you're telling me this. Mm. Now I'm actually helping my child understand their disappointment. I'm validating their disappointment. I'm learning to help them cope with disappointment. 
all because I was able to distinguish kind of what was actually their feeling from what just turned into my guilt. How do you recommend people go about practicing that? Yeah. That takes, you know, I mean, mindfulness or, you know, in the moment, not reacting to your own emotions, right? Or where you want to go with that. Yeah. So I'll give you a little exercise. I mean, there's okay. not, you know, and, and I always like to caveat it, right? Like big things in our life, you know, like they take time to change. I just want to like level set. Yeah. Like nobody, and it's true. <laughs> on social media, I love to put things out on social media. But the reason I do workshops, the reason we have our whole workshop collection and our membership is like, I'm just a straight shooter. I'm like, we really think we can rewire our body and how we process something like guilt from a social media post. Like we just have to like respect our body a little bit more. Like it's not that malleable with good <laughs> for good reason, right? <laughs> so like anyone here is like, wow, this resonates. Like whether it's our membership or it's a book that someone recommended you, it's your therapy. Like there's a lot of options. It doesn't have to be our thing. It's just something to like respect your own self enough to be like, I am going to invest in this. Like we show ourselves what we value by how we spend time. And like spending time on ourselves shows our body we really want to change something. And so it doesn't mean anything's wrong with you. It's just how change actually takes place. Mm -hmm. So having said that, here's a little strategy. So I always picture guilt and the usefulness of thinking about what's guilt and what someone else is feeling. I, I just, I'm not even a tennis player, okay? But I always picture myself on a tennis court. So I'm on one baseline, right? And then there's the net. But instead of a net, I visualize like a glass wall, right? So like I can see the other player. So maybe it's like a, you know, it's a squash type core. I don't know. But it's like a glass wall where the net is so I could see it. And on the other side, on the other baseline is the other person. So maybe this is my partner. Maybe it's my seven-year-old who's really upset that I missed spirit day drop off. Okay. So I see them there. And I picture my, let's say it's my daughter. And she's on the other side baseline. Just, she's crying. Oh, mom, you're the only mom who wasn't there. And why do you have to do this job? And why can't you always do, you know, you don't love me. Like they, you know, they say the things like, Ugh, right? You don't love me. If you loved me, you were at you. If you loved me, you'd be at spirit day drop off. Okay. So then I literally like right now, picture your child on that baseline and picture those feelings kind of coming out of their body, which they do when our kids say stuff to us, like, I hate you, or you don't love me. It's like their feelings are so big that they're exploding out. And now the feelings are like traveling toward us. Maybe it even feels like a high velocity, right? Toward that net, which is actually a glass wall toward us. And really, I want you all to like picture those feelings. They don't have to like aggressively back bounce off the wall to like knock your child down, but just like they stay on her side. Mm. Like they stay on her side. And you on your side, you see them and you can definitely care about them. And there's a boundary. Like we talk about this a lot in psychology. It's It seems like theoretical, but this is actually a good example. Like what is me and what is not me? Mm -hmm. Those feelings are not you. They're not you. And if it already feels like, oh, it's funny. I'm listening to this. Like they're already on my side. Like they're already on my side. I feel them in my body. I feel guilty. I'm about to make all these rash decisions about my life or, you know, just like take a deep breath and just say to them, like, I care about these feelings and they're not mine. Um, I'm going to return them to their owner. And whether you have a tennis racket in the image or just your hands, like push them back. And I think that exercise of asking yourself, like what's mine? What's on my side? Because what's on my side there is caring about my child. What's on my side is maybe, you know, it could be all types of things, but those feelings didn't generate from my body. And to really show up in a way where I can care about my child, I have to see her feelings as hers, not my own. Right. 
And so how does that relate to tantrums? Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> there's that's you know such a big issue with totally. parents and you know so many I mean we struggle to address them, right? So I can see that image being the same or similar, but like what are what's the best way to yeah. address tantrums? Well, I think one of the, you know, the things that's the most powerful question to ask yourself with any job with any tricky situation with your kid. So maybe it's them complaining you were not drop off, it's a tantrum, it's sibling rivalry, anything, is what is my job here? Mm. Right. So if we bring it back to like the workplace, I don't know anyone who would walk into a job, a job the first day, without knowing their job description. Like nobody would ever take a job in an organization. They're like, I don't know. I got a new job. I'm just going to, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what know it what is. Supposed to do. <laughs> I don't know. You know, you couldn't feel good at that job because you'd be like, should I, you wouldn't know what to do. And so until you know what your job is, you can't determine how well you're doing your job or what you want to do to even improve your job performance. So tantrums, like I think everyone listening to this should ask themselves this question. What's my job during a kid's tantrum? What is my job? What is not my kid's job? What is my job? Most parents I've asked this to are like, first of all, I've never thought about it that way. And actually, I have no idea. They're like, tell me. I don't know. Right? And, and But it's a nice moment to be like, not your fault that you don't know your job, but it does give clarity to why it's so overwhelming. Like, you would feel very overwhelmed going to any workplace not knowing what your job was. Right. So it's not even that the workplace is bad. It's not even that the tantrum is bad. It's that you don't have a JD. You know, you need a JD to sign up for so here's what I think a parent's job is during a tantrum. A parent's job is to keep their body safe. Sorry. A parent's job is to keep their body calm and to keep their child safe. Mm. And he says, my job is to keep my child safe and my own body calm. Or maybe more realistically, my job is to keep my child safe and to keep my body as calm <laughs> as possible. Okay. That's it. Now, what's not part of that job description? Because in any workplace too, if you're sophisticated when you start a job, you would also ask, what's not part of my job? Like the person sitting next to me, like I just want to know what do they do that I don't have to do? That's a really important question too in a big system, right? So what is not your job? What is not your job is calming your child down. Hmm. Keeping your child safe is very different than keeping your child calm. Most parents... um unconsciously somewhere think that their job during a tantrum is to get their child to calm down. Mm. And then no wonder it's like a horrible system because then your child's not getting calm. You're feeling like, oh, I'm not doing my job. I'm not doing my job. I need to do my job. And then you're just off to the races. Failing, yes. <laughs> so not your job. To think about a tantrum as like it's it's a storm. Like you can't stop a storm. You, you know, our job is to keep our kid safe, which is really the equivalent of like containing a fire. So to even picture your child in tantrum state, they're having an emotional fire. Literally a tantrum means the feelings in my body were bigger than my capacity to manage those feelings, mm. period. Feelings bigger than capacity to manage. That happens a lot when kids are young because they're born with all the feelings and none of the capacity. It's just terribly inconvenient, right? And over the course of hopefully their childhoods, we are the teachers, not through our lectures, but actually through our experiences with our kid of how they learn to manage feelings. But there's a mismatch for a long time. So if the feelings are bigger than the capacity to manage feelings, you have these emotional fires. Well, in my fire metaphor, there is no fire extinguisher and we wouldn't want to extinguish a fire that's mm. an emotional fire. Because again, if we want to help our kids learn to manage feelings, you don't ever manage feelings when you're an adult by bringing that feeling down to a zero. 
If you're at a 10 of a 10, you just try to get to an 8 out of 10 and then to a 7 to a 6 because once you're at a 6, it's not great, but you can move on with your life, right? Yeah. So we're containing a fire. How? Well, first, really assessing for safety. There's many different tantrums. If my kid is hitting me, not safe. If my kid is throwing a glass vase, not safe. So how would I do safety? Through my boundaries. That's how I would make sure my kid is safe. I will not let you throw this vase. I'm picking you up and I'm carrying you to your room and I'm going to sit with you there. You're not in trouble. You're a good kid. We need mm. to be in a smaller space while things feel so hard. I am literally keeping my kid safe. Mm. If they're crying and, you know, whatever else, and it doesn't seem so disruptive to everyone else, I maybe keeping them safe is just, well, they are safe. And then I focus on my other job, try to keep my body as calm as possible. Mm. And then you basically wait. And the biggest irony is the more you focus on your job and doing your job well, the tantrum is going to end when it's going to end. But I promise you, you're not going to be adding kind of kerosene to the fire. Mm. Like the more you try to stop it, the more you're adding your own frustration, your more unconscious judgment, which only makes the fire bigger. So your only job during a tantrum is that containment. I just want to say one more thing, and then we won't be able to get into it. That's not the only thing we need to do around tantrums. The thing with tantrums is we want to actually teach our kids the skills right. so that the next time they're in a similar situation, they have more skills to manage those feelings. That doesn't happen during a fire. You don't fireproof your house if you have a fire, you just contain the fire. And when the fire's contained, you would reflect of like, oh, what led to that fire? Oh, right. maybe I need to clean the gas from my, I don't know, from my stove, whatever it is, right? We have to do the fireproofing with our kids. There's so many things we can do to help them actually build skills. None of those things are timeouts and punishments, I should add, that only add shame, not skills. But we don't do those in the moment. So in the moment, right. we know our job is containment. Out of the moment, our job is to fireproof and and teach our kids skills. I think that probably uh, brings a lot of parents listening some relief. <laughs> Hopefully, yes, yes. So, but for I guess for the parents that are really struggling with their child, like at what point should they seek help? What point do they, you know, go beyond themselves or tuning into? you know, some, some self-help things perhaps on the totally. internet, et cetera. But like, are there red flags, you know, either yeah. in themselves or with their kids that there's something bigger going on and that they really do need to seek additional help and, and feel yeah. no shame around that? Yeah. I mean, there's so many ways to think about help. So like I'm thinking and feeling this as a truth. So I'm just going to say it. Like, I really believe every single parent who can like needs to be part of our membership. Like it is it is game changing. It is game changing to have resources you trust as opposed to random articles that were just SEO optimized that you find on a search engine. Literally Absolutely. not meant to help you, yeah. but meant to sell ads. Um, it's game changing to have resources you trust. It's game changing to have parents around you who are non-judgmental and actually offering you like valuable ideas and information whenever you have questions. And it's game changing to have access to parenting coaches and to relationship experts and to occupational therapists and to cross-cultural psychologists who give you that extra little something when you need, you know, some expert support. Like, and the way I see it really is what I was talking about with you earlier. It's like, yeah. this is not a sign of a problem. This right. is a resource and a type of support 
that 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 you deserve. deserve. You said you deserve. Deserve. You know, like we we tend not to think about self care that way. We think about it as like a pedicure, and I I love a pedicure too. But a pedicure doesn't help me feel empowered. Like I deserve to feel empowered and equipped as a parent. I parent twenty four seven. So like that is too important and too long term of a job to not feel good about myself. Mm. Like I just I I just I do. I think I deserve that. So now having said that, there's a lot of ways to get help. There's books. There's memberships, there's courses, there's therapy. I think my number one thing I would tell parents is like, it's really, it's really helpful to think about it. Not as like what flags show me I need help, but just like at what points can I recognize in myself that like, I need more members of my team. Mm. Like I need more support. I don't know what to do. I think if a parent doesn't have clarity, it's the worst feeling. We, we, we always think that we'll feel better when we see things change. That obviously helps. We actually start to feel better as soon as we have clarity on our role and clarity on what's really happening in our kid. Mm. And when we're really in a tough place with our kid, we're probably stuck in a framework of looking at things that that's unhelpful, but we just like can't shift out of. And so step one is someone, a book, something that helps us shift framework and makes us say, wow, I've never thought about it that way. Already, I actually start to feel better because I feel more hopeful from this new framework. And now let's get to work and turn that framework into strategies that would actually help our whole family system. And that's what I think therapy and so many other things really, you know, good parent coach. um, I think that's what our membership does too. Like I think we're expert reframers first. And then we take frameworks and translate them into strategies that actually make parents think like, oh, I can literally do that today. Like that is not complicated. I can do that. I think I can remember to do that. And then I can accumulate a lot of wins. And there's other plenty of other places that do that too. And I'm the biggest proponent of therapy. And honestly, a lot of times on our membership, people will say like, well, when do I know I need that extra level? I think it's just like when you know, like I need more support. Like I even as a parent, if I'm the leader of my family system, it's not only kind of how much is my kid struggling. That's yeah. obviously a factor. But it's also like, how much am I struggling? Like, yeah. I just don't need to feel this way. And there's a lot of therapists out there who are waiting to be a partner, right? And, and really help you in this journey. Parenting is a journey, right? It's not a problem to solve. It's a journey that we're on. It's, 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 it's never ending. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So one last question for you. Okay. And this has come up in, a, in kind of a couple of different ways we've talked about social social media and obviously you do a great job of putting out positive helpful information for parents but there's also kind of the the downside right that social media can be toxic when it comes to comparisons in all parts of our lives but i think certainly in feeling like whether i'm a good parent or not <laughs> um so I, I guess any tips do you have for parents, you know, to manage their relationship with social media effectively? So I'll start with this, which is I, I just don't think anyone feels great about their social media or screen use. They don't feel good about their own. They don't feel good about their kids. It's an unwinnable system, right? Mm-hmm. We have these devices that are designed to steal our attention. Like it's just there's nothing more powerful than our attention, right? Everything comes after our attention and they're designed to steal it from us. And so how do you win? How do you feel good about that? You just do your best. So everyone listening, like, I don't feel good about it either. I have a plan every night. I leave my phone outside my bedroom so I can go to sleep 
and read instead of being on my phone and staying up later than I want and buying random things I don't want to buy. Like, okay. And I do that sometimes. And like last night I didn't do that. And I'm today I'm like, oh shoot, I didn't do the thing I told myself I would do. Okay. Still a good person. I'm going to try again today. So no one feels great about it. Step two is I really think we have to ask ourselves some deep questions. And I think I kind of hit the nerve for myself. And I think this is true for a lot of people. I'm like, what is it? What is the feeling? my phone gives me, like when it's not even near me and I walk toward it, what feeling do I think it's going to give me that I'm so drawn to? Like what's really driving this relationship or addiction? And and I think what our phones really take from us um, is like they take our feeling of enoughness. Mm. Like they, they get in our way of ever feeling like enough because there is an endless amount of information on our phone something to read, a text, something to buy. There's endless information. And in a world of endless information, the idea of pausing and saying, well, right now, me doing Play-Doh with my kid, that's enough. I am enough in this moment. There's nothing else I need to know. There's nothing else I need to do. There's nothing on Amazon I need to order. There's no extra t-shirt I need to purchase. Like I am enough. And there's something about the word enough, I'll be honest. Like when I say that to myself, it's one of the only times I can actually resist getting my phone. Mm-hmm. Like I'll say to myself, Becky, like, no, you don't need to be on your phone. Nope, doesn't work. I still go get it. Or like, Becky, that message can wait. No, nope. but when I tell myself deeply, like Becky, right now, you sitting on a couch reading your book, you are doing enough you are enough. Or sometimes I get hyperbolic with myself. It helps. Like, this is exactly what you need to be doing. There's nothing more important than what you're doing right now. It's the thing that can really help. So I would say, I think we all need some type of mantra. And then the next thing is, I think there's something to like a really limited time where you're not with your phone. And so if you're like, oh, I'm on my phone too much. And probably a lot of people are like, I know what distracts me with my kids. And I know even one of the reasons probably some of their difficult behavior keeps popping up. It's like, I'm not really present ever because there's always a phone between my face and them. Is Don't tell yourself like, I'm going to be better tomorrow. Like tell yourself, I'm going to spend five minutes tomorrow with my phone behind two mm. doors. I always have a two door policy. It has to be behind my bedroom door and my bathroom door and both have to be closed. Like it can't just, I don't trust myself with one. <laughs> and so five minutes, five minutes, right? So no one feels great about it. Come up with a mantra that speaks to like probably what feels anxiety producing without our devices. And step three, come up with a really limited amount of time to start with, to start building your own ability to kind of separate from these powerful devices that are calling our attention. And I think that advice goes for anyone, whether you are a parent or not. So Dr. Becky, thank you so much. I'm sad to say that our time is coming to an end. There was so much in here, um, so much so much wisdom um, for all of us to take away about parenting, but just about our relationship with ourselves and pretty much with everybody in our lives. So thank you uh, for your time today. Well, thank you for having me. And really, um, you asked such amazing questions and I appreciate the depth of this conversation. And I'm excited to connect again, hopefully sometime soon. I'm so grateful Dr. Becky could be with us today to talk about parenting. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. 
And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the Work Well podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. The information, opinions, and recommendations expressed by guests on this Deloitte podcast series are for general information and should not be considered as specific advice or services.